Supporting the military is something that's always very important to me. People wanted to ask me how my, my child wants to be a catcher. What do I tell them? And I said, catch every ball. And in life, isn't that the way it is? I spent two years in the service, and I was proud to be part of it. I wore that uniform with a pride and dignity, just like I wore the Dodger uniform with great character and love. The greatest name in the history of the Cleveland Indians franchise, Mr. Bob Feller. The published author of three books about baseball, Mr. Ed Randall, is a radio and TV personality, including the host of the weekly Saturday morning show, Remember When, on Sirius XM's MLB Network, as well as Sunday morning's Ed Randall's Talking Baseball on New York's WFAN. Ed Randall's Talking Baseball broadcasted nationally from 1988 to 2002, where Ed's 500-plus interviews included at least two World War II veterans in the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Ted Williams and Yogi Berra. Mr. Randall is the founder and CEO of Fans for the Cure, where he is working with professional baseball to team up in the battle against prostate cancer. We welcome Mr. Ed Randall to the American Valor Podcast. Thank you for being with us, Ed. Nathan, Tyler, great to be with you. Thank you. Please tell our listeners about your story and your start in the game of baseball. Well, I am uh, a product of Fordham University in New York, and it was there that I uh, went to work at the college radio station there, WFUV, and fell in love with the idea of broadcasting. And I would always uh, do play-by-play to myself when I would be uh, playing ball, when I'd be playing center field or shortstop or, or, or whatever as an amateur player and thought that, uh, boy, this is just great. I, I love doing this. And maybe there's somehow, some way I could uh, do this professionally. After I uh, came out of Fordham, I spent seven years uh, broadcasting, doing play-by-play in minor league baseball, and then became a uh, sports reporter and anchor and have done pretty much everything in the business now over the last 40 years. But the centerpiece of my work has been the surrounding baseball. Which uh, campus in Fordham did you go to? I was at Rose Hill in the Bronx. Okay. I, uh, I actually did a, a week there for a business and innovation um, seminar. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's, it's, a, very, it's a nice campus. Um, yeah, it's so you talked yeah. about how you started in the minor leagues and then rose up and now are doing just about everything in the business. What was that like to start down in the minors and then get to the, you know, the MLB? Well, it was starving, pr- frankly. I took my uh, first job in Elmira, New York, with the Boston Red Sox and was actually doing a uh, professional baseball game in the New York Penn League between uh, Elmira and the Oneonta Yankees. And I uh, so wanted to get into the business, I took the job for free. And it's a long uh, and very entertaining and funny story about how that came to be. But uh, in the interest of time, um, I took the job for free. Three weeks uh, into uh, my commitment to the Elmira Red Sox, uh, I went up to the owner of the team one night after a game. It was a 3-2 to two win over the Mets in 12 innings, the uh, Mets Farm Club in Batavia. And I showed him my wallet, and I had no money in it. And this was a billionaire who owned this team, owned uh, various real estate properties and condominiums, and uh, also owned a frozen food company. And he uh, put his arm around me and he said, uh, Skippy, called everybody Skippy. He said, Skippy, I'm going to pay you $3 a game. 
And that's how I got started in the business. I got $3 a game. I got $6 for double headers. And one day uh, I walked down Main Street in Elmira because all our games were at night. And I walked into McDonald's. And when you walk into McDonald's with a bachelor's degree from a major Jesuit institution, you've got a pretty good shot of getting that job. And I did. And so they gave me a paper hat and I went in the back and spent the rest of the summer dressing your Big Macs, very generous with the lettuce. And that's how I started my income. But it was a start in the business and I was grateful. So you started in the minors and then eventually you got to fill in for a Yankees game. What did that mean to you? Well, uh, that was, yeah, that was very uh, much, much later. I had been in the meeting at Yankee Stadium. And the person running the meeting said to me, uh, you know, there's going to come a time when we build the bench for uh, Bob Shepard, the legendary public address announcer uh, at Yankee Stadium, and basically said, uh, would you be interested? And I said, you know, I hope Bob Shepard lives to be 150 and a half. But if, in fact, you are looking to build the bench, I would be flattered to be part of that. And then this was in February. and in July, right after the All-Star game, I was covering a Mets-Phillies game when my uh, my beeper went off. Don't laugh. My beeper went off. And it was somebody at Yankee Stadium calling me to tell me that Bob's number one substitute had a wedding in Ohio on an upcoming weekend. And would I be interested in sitting in and doing the public address announcing at Yankee Stadium for an Angels-Yankee series? And I was, after I had my, oh my God moment, I said, uh, of course I would. And that's how I got the opportunity to uh, sit in and do uh, the Yankees and Angels on a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, two of the games of which were broadcast nationally. So uh, I was getting responses from friends of mine around the country saying, that can't be him. Is that him? No, it can't be him. Well, it was. And I'm assuming you're a lifelong Yankee fan then too so that was a real dream come true well i'm not uh, no i've never been a yankee fan actually but i uh, i did live growing up i lived three and a half miles from yankee stadium and i went to a small all-boys catholic school three blocks from yankee stadium for 12 years i went to grammar and high school there and i took the subway behind the uh, center field fence if people remember the old yankee stadium they'll remember that subway stop right behind the center field the bleachers and that's where i uh, that's where I took the subway to go home every uh, day. But it's a very funny story about how I was not a Yankee fan, but I have a great respect for the franchise. How do you explain to someone what that experience is like after a, a career in minor league baseball? Obviously a big, huge fan of the game. How do you explain to someone what it's like to go to Yankee Stadium after all those years of the minor leagues and the difference between the two? Well, it's not only just the years in the minor leagues and earning my way up, if you will, but it's also the fact that I've never lost the respect for my past and that I'd be standing on the field in the old Yankee Stadium and I'd look up and I'd see that subway stop and and I would see in my mind the little boy that took that subway to go home and to really, in a moment of self-examination, say to myself, my God, this is just really something. The kid from the Bronx gets to stand on the field at Yankee Stadium after years of staring into the ballpark while waiting for that subway to come. And I had a uh, wonderful friendship with a uh, one of the greatest baseball broadcasters ever, a man named Ernie Harwell, 
who's in the uh, broadcaster swing of the baseball hall of fame and Ernie became friends with me and my family and he once said the lucky is the man to whom God gives a job that he loves and I've always considered myself to be very lucky to do what I love yeah I'd say uh you know talking about baseball and focusing on baseball for your for a career would be amazing as a baseball fan and you know thinking about you being that kid and then looking out on Yankee Stadium and then getting to that point that must be absolutely amazing yeah it it it, it really is I've never uh, I've never taken what I do for granted so uh I've always been very appreciative of the opportunities I've received I've worked very hard for those opportunities but I'm uh very grateful to be able to uh, live a life and do something that I love every single day. Is there like a special story throughout your career that, you know, stands out that you'd be willing to share with us and our listeners? Well, I've done a lot of different things. I've anchored. uh, I've worked as a color guy. I have uh, done sideline reporting. I have produced. I've written three books and I have also hosted my own television show, which uh, you made reference to earlier, the television talk show, currently doing sports talk radio, both on Sirius XM uh, nationally and WFAN radio here in New York locally. And there have been so many opportunities to meet these people, these famous people, and interview them, have interchanges with them, in many cases become friends with them. And to be able to look back on having interviewed Mickey Mantle, for example, three times on my television show, to have had Ted Williams on my television show, who to me was larger than life, not just for his 344 career batting average and arguably the greatest hitter that ever lived, but the great patriot that he was serving our country in two wars. So uh, there's just been so much that I've had the opportunity to enjoy, and I've been most grateful for that. Ted Williams is one of the 37 National Baseball Hall of Famers who served in the United States military during World War II. The Bob Feller Foundation seeks to educate people about these 37 Hall of Famers who served their country in an uncertain time and the sacrifices that those individuals made for their communities. So what sticks out to you from your relationship with Ted Williams? He was so kind to me, and I was just blown away by him. My first occasion to be in his company occurred in Fenway Park. I was doing my television show in New York, and one of the guests that I had was Dominic DiMaggio, Joe's brother who played beside Ted Williams as the center fielder for the Boston Red Sox. And some months after the interview occurred, there was a uh, an old-timers game in Boston to which I was invited, and then I was invited to the uh, ensuing dinner early that evening. And I was seated with Dominic DiMaggio, and after a dinner had been served and the plates were cleared, he took me by the hand and he brought me over to Ted Williams' table. And he said, Teddy, I'd like, I'd like you to meet Eddie Randall. Uh, he does a television show here in New York, and he had me on his show to talk about my book, and I thought I'd bring him over to meet you. And Ted Williams, as only Ted Williams could say, uh, because everything in his life was a reference to hitting, Uh, says to me, Eddie, it's nice to meet you. You know, the fact that Dami likes you, that's a lot of hits in your favor. And I thought, (laughs) my God, who in the world would say something like this? So that was my first exchange with him. And then my title sponsor for my television show was the Upper Deck Trading Card Company. And Ted was endorsing 
for Upper Deck. And when the All-Star Game would come around and there would be the All-Star Fan Fest, we would be invited to go shoot our shows at Fan Fest. And we'd go and shoot five shows in one day, which was a common occurrence in New York, where we'd shoot five shows in one day at HBO Studios in Manhattan. So we, we moved the show to California in 1992 with the San Diego Padres of the host team. Ted is going to be there and Upper Deck because of their sponsorship arrangement with me and their endorsement arrangement with Ted, they make arrangements for Ted to do my show. So uh, we're in this large open area in the San Diego Convention Center. And then we get word, we're going to shoot four shows. And then our fifth show is going to be Ted. We get word, Ted wants no part of being in the middle of the San Diego Convention Center. And so we got to break down the set, go downstairs, find another place in private, uh, area where we could host Ted. So we knock down the set, we go downstairs, we take a portion of the set, we put it up downstairs, bring down the cameras, arrange the lighting, and Ted walks in. And he was larger than life to me. And he spent a half hour just leaning forward and leaning his right hand on my left knee as I asked him questions and he would answer them so earnestly. And he was just Larger than life. I, I know I'm re- repeating myself, but th- but that's what he was. He missed uh, a number of seasons, six, seven seasons, because of his military service. He wasn't one of these uh, baseball players who went off and signed autographs or played for the uh, the base team. He actually was in combat. And sometime after that, I had Kurt Gowdy on the show. We we grew up with Kurt Gowdy back in the day. He was the voice of baseball on NBC on the Game of the Week on Saturday afternoon. And uh, Kurt had written a book, and he came in to do my television show. And he had a very close relationship with Ted Williams, and he said this. He said, Ted Williams was the greatest hitter I ever saw. Ted Williams was the greatest fly fisherman I ever saw. And he said that Ted Williams was the greatest pilot that his wing commander ever saw in Korea. And his wing commander happened to be a man named John Glenn. So that was good enough for me. So that should give you a sense of the awe that I had for this man. And I'm just so grateful that I had the opportunity to meet him and more than that, be able to interview him. That is incredible. We can only imagine all of the stories that you've had with people in the world of baseball over time. Is there something that sticks out to you as something that people can learn from some of these baseball legends, baseball heroes, something that kind of transcends themselves and something that people can learn from their lives? Well, I I do a tremendous amount of homework before I uh, do my interviews because as the great John Wooden, the legendary UCLA basketball coach said, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. And I have... I spent a tremendous amount of time preparing my shows uh, back then when I was doing my television series and even now when I do my radio shows. And the texture of my interviews are such that it's not just talking about to a hitter about the home runs he hit or the great days he had. It's also talking about his life off the field to try and portray him that they are, in fact, at the end of the day, human beings and that they have the same issues facing them as all of us do. So I've always tried to humanize them as best as I possibly can, and people tell me I've been very successful doing that. In the same light that you try and ask them about their endeavors off the field, I guess we'll, we'll do the same thing with you. I mean, you're 
the CEO and founder of Fans for the Cure, which is a battle against prostate cancer. Can you tell us about the connection with professional baseball that you've had and the success that your foundation has had through that connection? Well, I spent uh, seven years in uh, minor league baseball, and I was diagnosed with cancer at the age of 47, which was uh, very young for prostate cancer. And it was a shocking occurrence. Fine. Uh, I felt like I feel talking to uh, both of you right now. I uh, because prostate cancer in its earliest stages has no symptoms. So uh, I go to the doctors for a routine annual physical. And uh, at least I thought it was going to be routine. And my doctor calls me the next day. John had never called me. And John goes, you know, your PSA is really high. Now, at this point in time, I've been broadcasting for a number of years. And my only definition of PSA was repeat after me, public service announcement. I had no idea this was an indicia for cancer. And he says, you know, maybe the lab screwed up. Come back, let's take another blood test and we'll send it to another lab, which was not what I wanted to hear because I've had a tremendous fear of needles since the age of five. But I thought, you know what, under the circumstances, I better go back. So I did. He took the second blood test. The results of this, I sent it to another lab. The results of the second test are exactly those of the first. I was filled with cancer. But as I like to say, through God's grace, I got uh, using a baseball allegory like Ted Williams would. I got a second at bat at life. And I went into my two favorite words in, in the English language, in remission, right there with Merry Christmas and Happy Birthday. And I said to myself, you know what? That on the day I was diagnosed, as I just mentioned, I felt fine because prostate cancer in its early stages has no symptoms. And yet there's an almost 99% cure rate if prostate cancer is detected early. And I'm one of those lucky guys. And I said to myself, you know what? There could be tens, hundreds, thousands, millions of guys out there like me walking around feeling fine, thinking they were fine, when in fact they were time bombs. We need to get to those guys and tell them there's an almost 99% cure rate of prostate cancer detected early with a simple PSA blood test. So I filed the 501c3 for a charity now called Fans for the Cure, dedicated to the proposition of spreading the twin gospels of prostate cancer awareness and the life-saving value of early detection. Having worked in minor league baseball for seven years and knowing people throughout the industry and some people knowing me because of my national broadcast work, I said, we got to go to the minor leagues because that's a unserved constituency of 50 million fans exceeded only by major league baseball, more than the NFL, more than the NBA, more than the NHL. We got to get to those people. So we started in, 19, in uh, 2007, our, uh, what we call our baseball road trip, to uh, 67 minor league teams where we picked up teams of local volunteers to hand out our collateral material. This past season was our 13th annual. Uh, we were in 121 minor league ballparks. And so over the expanse of 13 years in the minor leagues, and we are now an official charity of minor league baseball, of which there's only three others, ALS Foundation, Special Olympics, Boys and Girls Clubs, and ourselves. Through those 13 baseball road trips, we've been in more than 1,200 minor league cities, and we are very proud to have that association. Yeah, I was going to say, I worked with the Potomac Nationals uh, minor league team for five years, and I can still remember seeing some of the Fan for the Cure events at the stadiums when I was working grounds crew there. Um, that's really yeah, amazing. Josh, how... Josh, Olerud, Josh Olerud, right? I'm sorry? Josh Olerud, wasn't he running the show there? 
no, not not while I was there. I don't believe. But yeah, I, I still it's still amazing how baseball can impact the community, and it's it's really more than a game, and it creates a network for people such as you and the Fan for a Cure and us with the Bob Feller Foundation to reach out to right. all those people. No question. No question. So where could our listeners, how could they help fans for the cure? What are some things that they could do? We are uh, beginning an initiative where we're going to screen 100,000 men. And that's an audacious goal. But we're going to screen 100,000 men. And we're going to screen 100,000 men for free. So men will not have an excuse to not go to the doctors and get a simple PSA blood test. And how we're going to do this is we're going to get sponsors to help underwrite the costs that Fans for the Cure incur to help finance these PSA tests for these men who come forward and need a, a simple PSA blood test. But as importantly, and how the military community can help us, we are starting a recurring monthly donation program. And an individual can do this in honor of somebody that they know who, God forbid, died of prostate cancer, has survived prostate cancer. People our age, we know off the top of our heads, we know five or 10 people who have been diagnosed with prostate cancer. We're looking for as little as 10 or $20 a month from people so we can finance the PSA exams for somebody else to pay it forward. So we would welcome any contributions from anybody that will allow us to go out and let the widest possible audience know that we are here for them, that we are there to take the fear out of the possibility that there could be some problem, not necessarily cancer, but that we will be their resource to help them. In addition to what the charity does in terms of our work in the minor leagues, we also have a medical and provide referrals for doctors and hospitals. I've done this countless times for people that needed help to find somebody. We just found somebody in Michigan for somebody who needed a doctor. He was encountering some problems. And so come to us at fansforthecure.org using the number four, fansforthecure.org. I have no off switch. I'm there. And we will respond immediately to whatever concerns anybody has. But in terms of helping us financially, we would be deeply grateful as we begin this initiative to uh, change people's lives and save them. Mr. Ed Randall, thank you so much for joining the American Valor podcast. We are thankful you shared your time with listeners to speak about your career and your story, including persevering through prostate cancer and working to help other men do the same thing the platform of the game of baseball. For both of you and your audience, thank you so much for having me. Deeply grateful and have wonderful holidays. You can learn more about Ed's work with Fans for the Cure at fansforthecure.org with the number four. You can also find the link in the notes to this podcast. Please consider visiting the website and making a donation to help men facing prostate cancer. If you have received value from the American Valor podcast, please share the podcast with those you know and help us to share our content and stories with more people. We're grateful for your support. We hope you'll join us next time when we are joined by a member of the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation Board of Directors, and Dr. Himesh Lakwani. For Tyler Buckholz, my name is Nathaniel Cameron. Thank you for listening to the American Valor Podcast.